Matthew chapter 8, and we'll read from verse 23 through to verse 34. Say Matthew 8 and verse 23. And when he, that's Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs." And he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep banks into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Uh, way back in English history, there was a time uh, when the king died. It was Henry I. He died, uh, and he had no son. It was the days when uh, the nobles, the baron, those who held power in the country, were pretty adamant there was never going to be a queen on the throne, no woman on the throne. Uh, and so, although Henry had made them promise to put his daughter Matilda in charge, as soon as Henry died, the barons revolted uh, and tried to put. Uh, his nephew Stephen on the throne. And so for the first time in, in sort of English history, at least, there was a huge war, a civil war. But, but when you read the, the historians of the day uh, writing the account of it, they don't call it the civil war. They call it the time when Christ and his saints slept. Okay, when Christ and his saints slept. Leave aside the saints for a moment. The time when Christ slept. As they looked around the country, uh, they saw village against village, town against town, family against family even, slaughtering one another. Uh, The crops failed because the farmers couldn't uh, work the land, and so there was famine. Uh, Church buildings were ransacked and burnt. It looked like the whole country, the whole world as far as they could see, was completely in turmoil. And so as they looked at, uh, at the country around, their lives as they looked, as it were, at the the daily newspapers, and then they looked at their Bible, they saw a contrast. The Bible seems to tell us, and they were Bible men, the Bible seems to tell us that God is on the throne, that Christ is on the throne, ruling the nations. And yet we look around, and it is mayhem. The conclusion, Christ is asleep. When you look at your life at the moment, does it look like Christ is asleep? There are times when it seems that that our lives are in complete chaos. 
And on the whole, we're, we're a new church, we're a young church, therefore. Many of us are, not all of us sadly, but many of us are still in our, our 20s, we're, we're young. And it's possible that the tides haven't built up too much so far. It's possible that we've, we've got so far in life and the waves haven't really come crashing down. Not definite. For many people, the waves come smashing in very early in life. But, but it's possible. But let me tell you, that, that won't last. And those of you who are older will know this. At some point, the waves will build up, the storm will rise, and you just will be swamped. At some point in your life, it will seem as if Christ is asleep. I was a student for the first time. I'd come to faith relatively recently, and someone told me it'd be a good idea to read the Bible in a year. I was a history student. I had an awful lot of time on my hands, uh, and so I managed it. Uh, the bit that I found the hardest was, were the Psalms, because Psalm after Psalm after Psalm consists of people lamenting. Why are you so far off, O oh Lord? You know, I feel like I'm in a pit and being overwhelmed. And I just couldn't make head or tail of them, because frankly, I was 20 or something, 19, 20, and my life had been pretty good so far. But that's not normal. Uh, we already saw uh, last week that Jesus' two little pictures of discipleship uh, well, that of a, a man who had nowhere to lay his head. You see that in verse 20? The Son of Man has nowhere to, lead it, lead, sorry, to lay his head. And secondly, uh, of uh, the man who had to not even hang around to bury his father. If you want to know more on that, you have to listen to last week. I'm not going to explain it now. But essentially, Jesus was saying discipleship will be a time of uh, no comfort and great cost. And so when he issues that call to follow him, even in our story in Matthew's Gospel, straight away we see the disciples move from what is probably a pretty exciting moment, Jesus healing all these different people, that's been going on earlier in chapter 8, to trauma straight away. So in verse 18, we read this last week, Jesus saw the crowd coming, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And he gives the command, follow me, in verse 22. So we read straight on, he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. As soon as they start following, straight away they're in danger. Let's look at the storm first. Uh, they're on Lake Galilee, which is up in the north of Israel. It's pretty big, don't imagine Round Hay Park Lake. This is a, a big body of water, more like a sea. It would cover about half of, of, of Leeds. Okay, it's about that size, about 100 square, square miles not just the city centre leads, the whole area covered by leads. So it's a huge, huge lake, and it's in a, it's in a valley, in a pit. And if you've ever done sailing before, you, you might know that actually often lakes are, are more dangerous places to sail than the sea even, because the winds drop over the, uh, the mountains and churn up the waters. And this is a huge storm, a great storm, verse 24, Matthew calls it. Uh, his wor- word for it actually is an earthquake. It's been sort of made, tidal up into storm, but actually he says a, an earthquake hit the sea. And it's nothing small. The boat is in danger of being swamped by the waves. And so, understandably, the disciples are afraid. As is often pointed out, a number of them were fishermen. They're not likely to get easily scared on the water. And yet they are terrified. And so they go and wake Jesus. Astounding, isn't it? He's asleep. Despite the the fact that the waves are coming over the side, the winds are raging, the gale's howling, the rain may be pouring, Jesus, sleep. And you've got to sympathise with them, haven't you? When they go and wake him up, save us, O Lord, we're perishing. We're going to die. We've just started following you. 
we've made those sacrifices you called us to. We've left our homes behind. Peter just left his family home where he was, where his mother-in-law had just been healed. And the first thing that's going to happen, five minutes into the journey, we're going to drown. Okay, this is not what we thought was about to happen. This is not what we thought the Messiah was going to do. So what does Jesus do? Stands up and stops the storm. But he doesn't, does he? Do you see that? That's not what he does. They wake him up and he doesn't wake up, look around and say, sorry chaps, give me a sec, be calm. That is not the first thing he does. The first thing he does, do you see it? He asks them a question. Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Before he sorts out their circumstances, the first thing he does is deal with their hearts, deal with them. And even at this stage in the story, I think it's got a lot to say to us, hasn't it? Jesus is far more concerned by the state of your heart, far more uh, concerned to develop your discipleship than he is necessary to instantly sort out the circumstances, okay, the storms around you, if you like. Now, let me say straight away, it's not that he's disinterested in, a, in, in your suffering. Okay? Sometimes I think we can get too, almost sort of more, more biblical than the Bible, if, you, if that's even an expression, sort of too pious about this, as if it's, it's wrong to pray that God would heal us of our diseases or, or get us out of a painful situation. Of course not. Okay? We see in the New Testament people pray for healing, for example. Uh, in one of John's letters, uh, as he writes to uh, a church, he, he, he says, I hope it goes well with you in, in, terms of, in your health, as well as your spiritual growth. So it's not unspiritual to care about circumstances. But it is interesting, isn't it, that Jesus' first attention is given to the disciples, not the storm. That might suggest to us that if you are in the middle of turmoil, if it looks to you as if Christ is asleep at the moment in your life, then the first thing he wants to do is grow you as a disciple. Uh, to strengthen your faith, even perhaps before he deals with the circumstances. So let's look at that question. Why are you afraid, O oh, you of little faith? Jesus seems to link fear with having little faith. You wouldn't be afraid, disciples, if you had greater faith. It's a funny little phrase, actually, little faith. He actually calls them little faiths, as if that was a, like a word. You'd be a little faith. Why are you afraid, you little faiths? But what have they done wrong, though? It's not unreasonable to be scared in a storm, is it? Okay, you might have been in circumstances. Every time I go on an aeroplane and it just sort of slightly tremors, you know, I think I'm going to die. It's just, every time it, it jolts in the sky... Again, these guys are fishermen. They know what they're doing on the ocean. When the storms come up, it's not unreasonable to be scared by them. Nature is terrifying. So what is it wrong? Why are they showing little faith? What is their problem? Well, I don't think it is that they've woken him up and gone and asked him. And that's a good thing to ask Jesus to help you in your circumstances, help you in your struggles. I'm not even sure that it's quite that they doubt he's able to deal with it. I, mean, I think that's getting closer. I think sometimes in the past I've read this passage and, uh, and understood Jesus to be saying, well, you know, why are you panicking? Don't you know that I can deal with this? Well, I think that's getting close to the right answer, but, but not quite there. So I, I think they do think that Jesus might be able to deal with it at least because they bother waking him up. Okay, if they thought he was just completely useless, he's just a carpenter who's quite good at sermons, might as well leave him asleep. There's no point. I tell you, a vicar in a storm, no use at all. 
leave us asleep in the boat. But they realise he's more than that. They realise he's more than a teacher, more than just a carpenter. So they are showing some faith in him. They've, they've woken him up. They want him, the wandering carpenter preacher from Galilee, to do something about it. So I don't think it's quite that they think he's just going to be no use at all. And Jesus is saying, well, of course I can sort this out. What have they got wrong? Well, their fear is they're all going to die, isn't it? That's clearly what they're worried about. Lord, we're perishing. Why does that show little faith? Well, it betrays the fact that they don't really understand not just who he is, but also what he's come to do. If they really understand, understood who Jesus was, that he was this Messiah that God had promised, the Saviour who was going to come into the world to rescue people from their sin, they would know he's not going to die in a yachting accident on Lake Galilee. If they really understood that he was this promised king of the Old Testament, the promised prophet of the Old Testament, uh, the prophet, promised suffering servant who was going to be pierced for their transgressions, to use the word of Isaiah, then they would know he is not going to drown. This will not be the end of the story. They ought to have known, if they really had the faith to see Jesus properly, that this is not the final chapter of his story. This is not, if you like, the appointed time for Jesus to die. Jesus has come to rescue us from our sins. And if he's going to do that, he is going to have to die on the cross for us. Okay, if, if you ever thought about this before, it wasn't just that Jesus had to come into the world and just die somehow, any old how, as if a yachting accident or being knocked over by a horse uh, or getting cancer or just dying of old age would have worked. No, Jesus came into the world to die, if you like, legally in our place. That's why he was sentenced by the court. Okay, it was a court that should have given a different decision. Okay, he was innocent. But that, the whole point, he was dying under the curse. He was dying convicted in our place. Otherwise, in some sense, Jesus could have just been born and five minutes later died. Well, there you go, a perfect man's died. No, no, no. He had to willingly stand in our place and take our sins to the cross, be crucified for us. And that's what the disciples, I think, had failed to understand and why Jesus says you've got little faith at the moment. Not no faith, but little faith. This is not the end. If you really knew who I was and therefore what I was going to do, you'd know we'll survive this storm. And that just, I think, slightly changes how we apply this passage to ourselves. There's a temptation to say, isn't there? Look how powerful Jesus is. He can stop all the storms in your life if you just pray to him like the disciples did. Anytime someone goes and asks Jesus to do something, that's a picture of prayer, isn't it? Lord Jesus, help me. The disciples are praying there in verse 25. And so on first reading, we might think, well, let's just copy them. So I'm not in a boating disaster. I'm unlikely, I suppose, to be in a, in a, in a, a boating disaster out on the seas, but I'm ill, or I'm in danger of losing my job, or I'm lonely, or I want to get married, or whatever it is that, that's crunching in on me at the moment, all I need to do is go and ask Jesus, and he will sort it out. But I'm not sure that's exactly what this passage is saying to us, or the Lord is saying to us through this passage. After all, Christian sailors have died over the last 2,000 years, haven't they? People do die in boating accidents. I'm sure among them have been Christians. Was it that they just didn't have enough faith? They didn't pray hard enough? Well, no. There are no promises yet of complete protection 
from dangerous circumstances, or that if you get yourself into dangerous circumstances, that the Lord will somehow sort of pull you out, or if you just pray, it will be sorted. But, but rather, if we see that the, the question at the heart of the disciples' lack of faith was this failure to understand that Jesus' mission must be completed, his work must come to pass, then actually we, we begin to think along different lines. We begin to think, okay, the promise here is that well, Jesus can't be stopped. His plan to save you is utterly unstoppable. And as we read on in the Bible and we get a fuller and fuller picture, we know that his plan to save you, and those who sat here this morning, those who put their trust in Christ, is not simply that he, he, he dies on the cross for you, but also that he gets you all the way safely home to heaven. And sometimes we think that the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins, and therefore, forgiveness is on offer, and it's up to us to then, first of all, believe in it, and then hold on really tightly, and keep believing, keep believing, must keep believing, must keep believing, must keep myself safe until finally I arrive in heaven. As if Jesus does the first bit, opens up the door, if you like, the opportunity, and then, man, you better hold on tightly to that little gift of salvation until finally you get home, safe to heaven, and then you can relax. Jesus first, then me. No, not at all. From first to last, your, all of your salvation is in Jesus' hands. Yes, dying for your sin, but then also preserving you all the way to heaven. In fact, not in this passage, but he even gives us the faith to help us, to make us believe in the first place. Your salvation is 100% in his hands and therefore is utterly unstoppable. A storm could stop you. Okay? Storms kill you and me easily. All sorts of things in this world can kill you and me. All sorts of dangers from nature, from creation, if you like, can overwhelm us. Very fortunate, most of us live in England. We're pretty safe on the whole. There's unlikely to be another civil war in our land anytime soon, God willing. Brothers and sisters around the world in the church are constantly being pursued by the sword, by governments who do want to kill them. But even nature, the danger here that's threatening the disciples and Jesus, even that can come for us. Okay, disease will get us in the end. Sometimes death creeps up on, uh, uh, jumps on us and it's a knockout blow. Bang, we're, we're gone. Tragedy strikes. Sometimes it's just the slow, long fight that death just will win. It's like a boxing match. Sometimes death knocks us out in the first round. And huge tragedies jump on us and it is traumatic. But if he doesn't knock us out in a sharp blow, then slowly he wears us down. Like the fighter who will not go, will go and go and go, and eventually just will win on points. None of us beat the fact that our bodies are slowly decaying. Creation now is cursed, and if we're not threatened by a storm, we'll be threatened by something else. But the good news of this passage is they cannot separate us from Christ and from his plan to bring us into the new creation, to bring us ultimately into heaven. Nothing can stop his plan to save you. So, so whilst this isn't a promise that God will take away, guaranteed, traumatic circumstances in your life, it is a promise that he will bring you through them to the place of great calm. Do you see how, how the story eventually resolves? After he's dealt with their faith, he does turn to the circumstances. Then, verse 26, he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Just like that, it stops. 
If you've been on the sea and you've seen the waves, it, when a storm stops, the waves keep going, but not when Jesus speaks. He just rebukes them, tells them off, and they stop. Like a mill pond, like glass. One day Jesus will do that to all of creation. He will subdue all of creation. All the things that fight against us, all the dangers that threaten you, one day Jesus will speak a word when he returns and they will be gone. And creation will be nothing but delight to you. Your body won't get tired or ill or waste away. There'll be no more waves uh, to drown you. No more car accidents. No more cancer. No more starvation. No more sore. No more bloodshed. One day he will bring you out of the dangerous circumstances. And that is the second promise of this passage that in the future he will bring complete calm. So amazing, this miracle, that it's understandable it ends with another question, isn't it? Verse 27, what sort of man can do this? What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? And there's a terrible irony that that question is actually answered. Did did you notice when we read on? That question is answered, but not by the disciples, not by Jesus. Who answers the question, what sort of man is this? Well, two demons answer. So let's turn our attention to them, finally. Let's look at the demons in verse 28 to 34. Again, it's a calming miracle. Do you see how the two parallel one another? In the first miracle, Jesus calms the storm. In the second miracle, he calms these demon-possessed men. At the end of the beginning of the passage, they're raving mad. They're so fierce that, that people can't even walk along the road. By the end of the passage, the men are calm and back in their right mind, and the demons are expelled. Uh, we're the other side of Lake Galilee now. So we're in Gentile territory, not Jewish territory. That's why the pigs are being farmed. You know, the Jews wouldn't have been farming pigs. Uh, they were an unclean animal under the Old Testament law. And these two men, possessed by demons, are living in these tombs, these cave-like tombs. Um, they're still there. If you go to Lake Galilee, there is still the steep cliffs that lead down to the lake. And there are, people have found tombs in, in the cliffs, cave tombs in the cliffs. And these demon-possessed men answer the question, verse 29, they cry out, literally they scream, okay, they're raving, what have you to do with, O son of God, that the demoniacs, as they're called, the demon-possessed men, know that Jesus is the son of God. Son of God in the Bible usually means two things. It's certainly true that Jesus is the divine son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity. Okay, he is God in the flesh. But son of God all the way through the Bible is also a title given to the kings of Israel. So David was given the title son of God, not because he was divine, he was just a man, but he was just one of the titles given to him and then his son Solomon and on and on down the line. So so the demons recognise that Jesus is is the all-powerful son of God and also he's this conquering king, descendant of David, and they know that he will conquer completely. You see in their question, have you come here to torment us before the time, before the appointed time? They know they're going to lose. The the demons know that one day Christ the King will conquer and that they will end up in torment. And they're right. Theologically, these demons are pretty good. They know who Jesus is and they know what he's going to do. Jesus will, will one day conquer the devil. And we read about it. Ultimately, in, in the last book of the Bible, uh, Revelation, in chapter 20, we, we find out that the devil and demons are thrown into hell. You know, in cartoons, 
and in probably bad theology books too. It's often pictured as if uh, you've got you've got heaven and hell, and heaven is all kind of cloudy, and people play harps, and like the Philadelphia uh, advert, and hell is kind of hot and fiery, and there's devils with pitchforks, and basically God is in charge of heaven, and the devil's in charge of hell. There's sort of two kings, one's in heaven, one's on hell, and you want to try and hope you end up in heaven. That is not at all the Bible's picture. The devil doesn't rule in hell. It's not his kingdom where he's having a great time. Rather, hell is the place the devil ends up. He's in hell. God rules over hell as well. It is a place of torment, not just for those who disobey the gospel, don't believe the gospel, reject Christ, but also for the spirits who've rebelled. Hell is ultimately going to be full, not just of humans, but of spiritual beings. And these demons know it. They know they can't fight back. But they also know that the time isn't yet. Have you come, verse 29, to torment us before the time? And again, they're kind of right. They know that the day when Jesus finally destroys them, throws them into the abyss, into the pit, into hell, hasn't come yet. And it's not that day, whatever whatever the date was when this miracle happened, the 20th of July, 31 AD or whatever, that is a guess. Okay, that's not right. Whatever that date was, that wasn't the day that Jesus had come to fully destroy evil in the world. And that, I think, explains that, admittedly, at uh, first glance, bizarre incident with the pigs. Uh, it, it seems so strange, doesn't it? A herd of pigs, verse 30, is there feeding, and the demons beg Jesus, saying, let, let us go to the pigs. And Jesus does. And so the pigs charge off the hill and end up buried in the water. Okay, they go drown in the waters. The very waters that were going to drown the Messiah now drown the pigs possessed by the evil spirits. And there's all sorts of weird and wonderful ideas about what's going on here. People say, oh, the, Roman, the, the pigs are a picture of Romans and Jesus is driving out the Romans. And, you know, and what's going on? Well, honestly, it's pretty hard to know. Certainly, it shows that the strength of the demons that Jesus conquered, they then go destroy these hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pigs. Uh, Certainly, there's a parallel with the passage before. The storms that didn't conquer Jesus do drown evil. Uh, Almost certainly, there's a parallel with the Exodus. All the way through Matthew Gospel, we've been seeing that that Jesus has been pictured as an even greater prophet than Moses. Okay, the The Old Testament pointed out that one day a much greater prophet than Moses would come. And here, do you remember when Moses led the the people out, that the Egyptian army were drowned under the waters? Well, here Jesus conquers uh, not just human beings, but demonic spirits, and they're drowned. There may well be an echo there. But it still doesn't really answer the question, why do it? And I think all we can say really is this. Why not just destroy them? Why send them into the pigs? All we can really say is this. Jesus knows it is not the time, it's not the appointed time to completely destroy evil spirits. He has not yet been given permission by his father just to bang, throw them into hell. They still have the the right, if I can put it that way, carefully to exist. And so what he does is drive them out of mankind and into just beasts. He cares more about people than pigs. And so he drives them out. Uh, Some don't like it. The villagers come and they prefer the pigs to people. They want Jesus out. They beg him to leave their region. Some people are always more interested in their livelihood than Christ. 
I think more significantly here, uh, there's a lesson again for Jesus' disciples, for his followers. It is not yet the time, still, today, on the 5th of August, 2018, for Christ to fully destroy evil. Just as it's not yet the day for Christ to completely calm nature. Both threats, both chaotic forces that came at Jesus, uh, nature and Satan, evil. He shows he has got authority over, but it is not yet the time for whatever reason, hidden in the Father's plan, and I don't know it, and you don't know it, and he's not told us, for whatever reason, it is not yet the time for him to completely sweep those things away. And so his call for disciples who've started following him, just as the 12 did, or however many were in the boat with him, is not for us to go around acting as if there is no more evil in the world, or no more threat in the world. It's not for us to go out, you know, driving out all demons or whatever it might be, but rather our call is to trust Christ until he comes and destroys all evil. He's shown he's capable to do it in these miracles, but he's not yet promised to do it on earth. Or rather, he's not yet come to do it on earth. He will do it, but not yet. And the ultimate guarantee that he will do it is not so much that we see it in the storm and the, and the demoniac miracles, but ultimately it's in the cross and resurrection. I mentioned as we looked at the, um, the calming of the storm, it's just a little detail, but it's fascinating. Matthew doesn't call it a storm. Matthew calls it an earthquake. Luke and Mark tell the same story, and they both use the same word, the word for a storm, and the word for a storm, but Matthew doesn't. He calls it an earthquake, and I, I honestly don't know why it's translated storm here. I mean, that's the effect of it, a storm. Okay, so that's, that's what, what's going to happen. But he calls it an earthquake, and commentators have picked up on this. And so actually, Matthew, this, little, this word for an earthquake comes back to significant points. There are three earthquakes, basically, in Matthew's Gospel. Here, the storm, and at the cross as Jesus died, and at the resurrection as he rises again. So at the very moment that Jesus dies on the cross and conquers sin, pays for our sin, and at the moment he rises again from the tomb and is enthroned as the conquering king, again the earth shakes. And, and the scholars suggest that, that Matthew is just sort of nodding his head towards those two greater earthquakes that are to come. Because in many ways they are the moment that Jesus does defeat evil and conquer creation. is appointed king of creation. As he dies for our sin and therefore takes away the, the weapon of the devil. If, you're, if your sin is paid for, the devil's got nothing on you. He can't accuse you of anything. He can't separate you from God because there are no charges against you. He can't physically pull you away. His only charge, his only weapon is to accuse you of sin. But if your sin is paid for, then yeah, let him accuse. He can come to you and say, look, Fred, you are horribly lustful. I've seen what websites you've looked at. How can you go to this pure heaven? Sarah, I've heard your words. How spiteful they are. How can God let you into the peace and calm of heaven? Daniel, I've seen your heart, how cold you are, how weak your prayers are. How can God let you into the peace and calm of heaven? And you can say, yes, you are right. But Christ has paid for all of them. And the devil has got nothing to say. 
Christ has paid for your sins and given you his righteous life. He has conquered. What does that mean? Well, it means as a disciple, we can trust that that Christ is raised from the dead. He has conquered. So, So if it looks like Christ is asleep again in your life, it looks like he's not on the throne, then look again, not with the eyes of your head, but with the eyes of faith. He is not out of control. He is in control even of the storm in your life. And he will be using it for some reason. You might not be able to discern what that reason is, but for some reason he'll be using it. It has a point. And also that point is to get you into heaven. To take you on as a disciple. So do not fear that, that circumstances will win. That illness will win. That disease will win. That the curse of creation will win. He has conquered but also look forward. It's not just that he has gone, he will conquer, he will bring calm. He will one day return and the, the waves will be stilled. The demons will go. So hold on. Uh, Jesus is greater than anyone else who has walked on the face of this earth. The, the calming of the storm story is, is deliberately a little bit reminiscent of Jonah. Remember Jonah who sleeps in the boat and the waves come up and it's only when he's thrown overboard that the waves calm. Well, well Jesus is a far greater Jonah. He's not just a wicked runaway prophet. He's a true prophet of God who willingly sacrificed himself so that calm will come to creation. The calming of the, the, the demoniacs is just echoes of David's life. David, the great king of Israel, who, who is the only person in the Old Testament who seems able to calm evil spirits. If you've read books like 1 and 2 Samuel, really strange stories where, where David, often through playing the harp, is able to sort of quell evil spirits. Jesus is greater than Jonah, the prophet, greater than David, the great king. And so trust his word and submit to his rule. And he will carry you safely home. The storms might not abate quite yet. Evil might not be destroyed quite yet. But he will conquer. And when he does, he will gather you up into his kingdom of peace and security and joy. Let's pray. Our Father God, we praise you that Christ is on the throne and that nothing can stop his mighty right hand that all of creation is under his control, that the devil is on a leash, and that this world, with all its dangers and threats and turmoils, uh, is not beyond his power. Uh, we know that every raindrop hits its appointed target, that every cell in our body uh, is under his loving guidance. And so we pray, we pray for brothers and sisters here this morning and further afield who are in the storms of life that that you would lift their eyes, lift our eyes to the one on the throne who has given himself willingly for us, who loves us so much he would cast himself into the deep in order that the waves of sin and judgment might be stilled. And give us, we pray, the eyes of faith so we might see the true and greater David on the throne and confidently walk with him uh, towards the glories that await. Do this, we pray, our Father, for his name's sake. Amen.